2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Father, we are so thankful just for who you are. We are so thankful for your love, for your grace. We are so thankful for your word that you have given us, Lord. And I just pray that you use this word this morning to penetrate, that that truth might penetrate our very souls. Give us open ears and soft hearts to receive that word this morning, and I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. This passage in 2 Timothy is one of my favorites. I love this passage. It's the story of an old man who is near the end of his life, and he's writing to a young man, a young pastor. He's recalling things from his own life to use as examples to encourage the young man to stay in the fight, to stay in the race, and to finish strong. This passage really gets to the heart of what I want for my life. It gets to the heart of what I want for my family, what I, what I want for you, all of you, what I want for this church. In 1984, maybe some of you can remember this, the 1984 Olympics. They were held in Los Angeles that year, and something extraordinary happened in those Olympics. Now, I know something extraordinary happens in a lot of the Olympics, because that's kind of what it's all about, are these, these incredible acts of athleticism that you see. But in this particular Olympics, something went above and beyond the normal. This Olympics was the first to include women in the marathon. So they ran a women's marathon, and in fact, a, an American won the thing, but, but nobody really remembers who won it, because everybody remembers the Swiss lady who ran. Her name was Gabby Anderson Scheiss. They remember her because it was one of the top, most, the top five most memorable Olympic events of all time. When they come to the end of this race, the marathon, they run into the stadium for the final lap. So they come running into the Coliseum out there in Los Angeles, and and everyone is standing. And they could tell immediately that something was terribly wrong. Half of Gabby's body had basically shut down. She had used all of her energy, all of her electrolytes in her system. And it was just absolute sheer willpower and determination that that she was on her feet, let alone still moving forward. She's just kind of listing. If you see it, you can go to YouTube and watch it. She's listing and stumbling around this track. And the doctors are running to the side of the track, but she keeps waving them off. She keeps waving them off. She didn't want their help because if they had come onto that track, if they'd have touched her, she would have been disqualified from the race. But these doctors were telling the Olympic officials that that she was having a heat stroke and she could die. So they stood there not quite sure what to do. They, They didn't want to violate her wishes, but they also didn't want to let her hurt herself even more. 
So everyone just watched her stumbling and struggling around the track. And when she finally got to the finish line, she just, she just collapsed into the arms of these officials. Nothing but sheer determination and will to get across that finish line. There's something about that that, that appeals to us. Something about someone who digs down deep inside and doesn't give up. Something about someone who digs down and says, you know, I'm going to finish, and I'm going to finish this thing strong. I'm going to get across that finish line. Have you ever seen or experienced anything like that? One of my favorite movies of all time is Rudy. You ever seen Rudy? Okay, well, let me tell you about it. Rudy is a true story about a kid from a small steel town who wanted to play football for Notre Dame. Now, he was a pretty little guy. He was about five foot six, 165 pounds, who didn't even have good enough grades to get into Notre Dame. But he worked through junior college until his grades were good enough, and then, then he was a walk-on to the football team who was persistent and pesky about at least getting onto that practice squad. He outworked all the other players and finally won a place on the practice squad. And he spent the next two years getting absolutely pummeled by those starters. But he always got back up. And he always gave his absolute best. And he won the respect of every player on that team. Now the problem was that it doesn't get recorded that you were a part of the Notre Dame football football team unless you play at least one play in a regular season game. And no one from the practice squad typically ever gets into those games. So it was the last game of the season, and Dan Devine, the head coach, decides he's going to allow Rudy to dress for this game. But again, you have to play at least on one play to be recorded. So this game's going on. They're playing Georgia Tech, and it comes down to the end of the game. By this point in time, Notre Dame is absolutely killing Georgia Tech, but... The whole stadium is they're chanting, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Even the players on the sidelines are chanting his name. And the coach finally puts him in. In the movie, he plays two plays, but in, in reality, he actually played three plays. He, he played a kickoff and then two snaps as a defensive end. Imagine that, five foot six, 165 pounds as a defensive end, if you think about that. But the first was an incomplete pass, and the second... The last play of the game, Rudy records a sack on the Georgia Tech quarterback. The whole place just goes nuts. It, was, it is one of the coolest scenes that you'll ever see, and he is one of only two players in Notre Dame history to ever be carried out of that stadium on the shoulders of the other players. There's just something about that. Something about the tenacity of people like that that really attracts us. We can, we can really get behind a guy that says, you know, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to finish this thing, and I'm going to finish strong. That's Paul here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He comes to the end of his life, and he, he's writing to this young preacher, Timothy. And he gives him advice that can only come from a weathered man of God. He begins by giving Timothy counsel. Listen, just listen to the exhortation that he gives him in verse 5. But as for you, 
Exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul had just finished explaining in in verses 1 through 4 that many people will be turned aside by heresies of the day and false teachings of the day. But Timothy had to do something else. Paul says, but as for you, exercise self-control in everything. This command means to be serious or sober-minded. It has to do with moral alertness. The same verb was used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 8 to describe a, a watchful attitude for Christ's coming. Basically, what he's saying is, don't freak out. Keep your cool when you're facing opposition. Don't give up hope when you're discouraged. You have to remain calm. Calm like, a, like an airplane pilot flying through a storm. One commentator says that, talking about this verse, we must avoid being fat-headed or bobble-headed. Fat-headed meaning being puffed up with pride. Bobble-headed meaning bouncing around to every doctrinal fad of the day. And I think you could also add that we, we need to avoid being empty-headed, get invo- getting involved in ignorant controversies, or sick-headed, having a mind filled with immorality, or hot-headed, responding to criticism with sinful anger instead of with gentleness. See, instead, by the the power of the Holy Spirit, we must be level-headed. Self-control, stability, and steadiness are marks of the faithful believer. Paul himself exemplifies this this coolness later in this chapter. In, In verse 16, he states that everyone has deserted him during his first defense, but he says, may it not be counted against them. May it not be counted against them. He doesn't say, boy, I I hope they all burn for this. He could have, but he didn't. He's not reckless. He's self-controlled. He's level-headed. He's merciful. May the Lord give us the strength to be the same. So Paul tells him that he needs to exercise self-control in everything. Next, he says to endure hardship. Now, he'll talk about this later in verses 6 through 8, but but what he's basically saying is that we need to avoid being bitter in hardship, quitting because of hardship, or responding in violence to hardship. Listen, family, in comparison to Paul and Timothy here, we have very little experience in this church, in this city, in this state, in this culture of open, violent opposition and persecution. But we have brothers and sisters around the world, Christian brothers and sisters who face violent opposition and persecution every day. And so when hardship comes into our lives, instead of questioning whether God exists or questioning whether God loves us or or whether he really has good purposes for us in our life or wondering about whether we can go on, we ought to be ready to endure and embrace that hardship. To endure it for Christ's sake. That's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you be ready to embrace and endure hardship. Next, Paul says to do the work of, a, do the work of an, an evangelist. Now, Paul's probably not talking about the office or the position of an evangelist here. In Ephesians 4.11, in Acts 21.8, there's a special ministry for evangelists. But... 
The emphasis here in 2 Timothy is on the work of an evangelist. It's on the work of an evangelist. Every Christian, every minister of the word has the responsibility of being a herald of the truth of the living God. Being a herald of the hope of the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Timothy, in the middle of all your responsibility, all that you're doing in life, be a herald for the gospel. Do the work of an, ev- of an evangelist. Really, if you think about it, this ought to be one of the things that our hearts just beat for and that we are regularly praying for in our personal lives and together as a church, that the gospel would go forth in our ministries and that people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and rest and trust in him alone for salvation. That needs to be our passion. Each and every one of us are called to do the work of an evangelist. Do you really care about evangelism? Do you care about conversion, seeing people come to Christ? Every Christian should. And Paul is urging Timothy to care greatly about these things, to do the work of an an evangelist. Now listen to these last three words of verse 5. It says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Do you know what he's saying to him? He's saying, you finish strong. You finish it and you finish strong. That's what I want in my life. More than anything else, I want to finish strong. And I pray this morning that that is exactly what you want also. To finish strong. The question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, Paul's going to let us know. Verses 6 through 8. And he does this by assessing his ministry in three parts of his life. Okay? He shows us his present in verse 6 and declares that he is ready. He shows us his past in verse 7 and declares that he was faithful. And he shows us his future in verse 8 in his confident expectation of what awaits him. So let's look at his present first. He was ready. The first thing he tells us is that there has to be a present reality. There has to be a recognition of a present reality, a recognition of what the Christian life is like. He just told Timothy in verse 5 to endure hardship. So he comes in verse 6, and he talks about this reality. He's not living under a delusion. I mean, you know, hey, what is the Christian life like? Well, you know, it's wonderful and it's fun and it's always full of laughter. And you have everything that your heart desires. And if you have enough faith, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. There's a lot of people that believe that. Well, I don't know what that is, but that isn't the Christian life. There's some hardship here. Luke writes about this in Acts 14.22. And he says, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Not sliding down the fine slide or jumping through the bouncy house. But through many hardships. And he's already mentioned this to him. Through hardship. But look what he does in verse 6. He's going to give two analogies here. One of an offering or a sacrifice. And one of a boat. Alright. First he says that the Christian life is one of a sacrifice. 
If you're going to finish strong, you have to get this reality in your mind. It's a sacrifice. In fact, he says in verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out. I am already being poured out. Do you know what that verb is in the Greek? I'm going to give you a little language lesson here. I just took Greek this past this past semester, so I see it's all there. That verb is a present passive. It's a present passive in the Greek. Now, I know in the English that that, that doesn't even exist. How can something be present and passive? It's an oxymoron. But in the Greek, it does exist, and that's what we have here. What he's saying is that it's a present reality, but it has already started. It's already happening in my life. You see, five years earlier in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians 2.17, he used this exact picture to describe the possibility of his death. He said in Philippians 2.17, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith. So he had already knew this was coming five years earlier. Now he says, look at me. It's already happening. I'm being poured out. The image of sacrifice here is drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system. When, when, a, when a Hebrew would take a lamb to the priest to be sacrificed, he would also carry a jar of red wine. And the priest would take the lamb and sacrifice it. And as he's sacrificing it, the Hebrew would pour out that wine at the base of the altar. It was a symbol. It was, it was a picture While the lamb takes my place as my substitute for sin, this wine is me pouring out my life for you. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm being poured out for Christ's sake. Paul's entire life was about sacrificial service and hardship. Listen to him describe it in 2 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 24, he says, Five times... I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received the stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. He was being poured out. Now, I don't want to discourage you. Because while the Christian life is one filled with joy for serving our Lord Jesus Christ, it's also one of difficulty, hardship, and struggle. We don't talk about that much. In fact, you won't hear many sermons preached about this from popular cultural churches today. In fact, popular Christianity will tell you that if you have enough faith, you can have anything you want. You won't even get a cold. You can't find that in Scripture, though. In fact, church history will tell you just the opposite of that. We've come to a place where we think that suffering is the displeasure of God in our lives. And it very well may may be just the opposite. If you look back through the Old Testament and New Testament and church history, you will find out that some of the greatest people of God suffered. That's what Paul's saying here. 
He's telling Timothy that if, if you're in the ministry, if you're living the Christian life, you're going to suffer. Maybe not to the extremes that he did, that Paul did, but hardship will come. The question is, when your life is over, will people be able to, to say, you know, he poured out his life. She poured out her life for Christ's sake. Then Paul adds, he says that the time for my departure is close. The time for my departure is close. The word for departure in Greek is also used for the, the loosing of a ship from its moorings or, or a soldier loosing the stakes of his tent. The image of a boat is a beautiful one. Can you just picture Paul lifting anchor, tossing aside ropes and joyfully sailing to a better place? The believer never really dies. He or she just departs. And Paul longed for this ultimate voyage. He told the Philippians that he longs to depart and to be with Christ. Why is that? Well, because it's far better. Philippians 1.23 tells us that. Consider what Paul says elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 8.18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight and glory. You just heard all the stuff that Paul goes through. And he says, our momentary light affliction in this life. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. To come to thee is to come home from exile. To come to land out of the raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of my desires in the summit of my wishes. Believers have much to look forward to. This was Paul's dream. And now the ship was about to leave, and Paul was ready. Are you? Are you? So that's Paul's present reality. He was ready. But then he goes on in verse 7, and he talks about his past. He talks about his past. Paul then says that there has to be some personal determination some personal determination. He gives us three statements in verse 7. He says, first of all, I fought the good fight. Now, he isn't saying that, that he was a good boxer. He isn't saying nobody could beat me in a fist fight. He's saying that the fight is the good fight, the right fight, the worthy fight. The Christian life is the worthy fight to be in. You can get into, get into a lot of things in this life, but the only thing worth your life is Jesus Christ. The only thing worth it. You know, I've seen some guys that I admire, that I, that I look up to, throw it all away for worldly things. Some guys that seem to be in the good fight just, just throw it away for, for affairs, for, for money, for power and praise and popularity. 
for the things of this world. That's not what you want to do. Paul is saying that this is the worthy fight. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're kind of wondering in your mind, should I be committed? Should I not be committed? Let me tell you, there is nothing in this life more worthy of the fight other than Jesus Christ. Nothing. I have fought the good fight. That's what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. Then he says, I have finished the race. I have finished my race. It doesn't say I won the race. I finished the race is what he says. This was the race that God had planned for him. Does God have a plan for your life? Yeah, absolutely he does. If you're saved, he has a plan for you. So put your finger here in 2 Timothy and flip back to Acts chapter 9. Flip back to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is on his way to Damascus to arrest and most, most likely put to death Christians because that's, that's what he thought was the right thing to do at the time. And he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And what happens? He's blinded, right? He's blinded. So they take him into Damascus to a street called Straight to the house of Judas. And there he was in that house. He's sitting there. He's blind. Can't see. And then verse 11 of of Acts 9 says, The word of God came to Ananias saying, Get up and go to the street called Straight to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now Ananias is like, well, uh, uh, God, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but this, this guy's been killing Christians. I mean, he, he's just creating all kinds of havoc. I'm not sure if you have this thing right. You might want to check your facts on this. But then God speaks back to him in verse 15. He says, Ananias, go For this man is my chosen instrument. He is my chosen instrument. Do you realize that if you're saved this morning and know Jesus Christ, that you are an instrument of God? You are an instrument of God. For you, the question really doesn't come down to whether or not you are, because you are. The question is whether you're being used. Better yet, question really comes down to are you allowing yourself to be used that's that's really what it's about are you allowing yourself to be used by god well i i used to to do a lot of work i I used to do a lot of things in the church i used to teach i used to listen if you're sitting here if you can hear me if you're breathing here this morning god is not through with you He can still use you. He still has a purpose for your life. You're still his instrument. And you're supposed to labor until the Lord comes or until he takes you home. Acts 9.15, he says, He's my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It doesn't say that if he has enough faith, then everything's going to be great. No, it says he's going to suffer. In 2 Timothy, 
You can flip back over there. Do you know where Paul is when he writes 2 Timothy? Paul is sitting in a dungeon in Rome. He's in the maritime prison. And he's about to go stand before one of the maddest men to ever sit on the throne of Rome, Nero. Oh, we don't actually have recorded events of what that, I would love to have seen what that looked like. But there is no doubt in my mind that when Paul does stand before him, he bears witness to the one who saved him, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he will lose his head. He will lose his life. So as he writes, Paul knew that his time was almost at an end. That his race was finished. And he said, I have finished the plan that God had for me. Now you fulfill your ministry. You fulfill the plan that God has for your life. Listen, we all have a race to run. And the author of Hebrew tells us to run that race with endurance. The race that lies before us. And we do this by remembering those who have gone before us. By throwing off anything that keeps us from faithfulness. And by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We need to remember that as believers. Because it's not enough that we start well. It's not even enough that we run well for a little while in the middle. It is imperative that we have as a goal for our lives that we will finish well. We will finish strong. And Paul could say, I have finished the race. So he fought the good fight. He finished the race. And then he gives this third statement. He says, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Now Jude reminds us that there is a a faith that once and for all has been delivered to the saints. And I think that's exactly what Paul is speaking of here. He's saying, I've been faithful to the gospel. I've been faithful to the body of Christian truth. I've been faithful to the Lord Jesus in, in that which is taught about him. I have kept the faith. Others have gone before me and have gone the way of heresy. Others have gone the way of false teaching. But I have stayed true to the faith. Now, why does Paul go and say this to Timothy? Why does he even bother saying all this? Because he knows. He knows that the world is going to say to Timothy that everything he does, he's doing in vain. And Paul wants Timothy, he wants to say back to Timothy, he's saying, look, look, living life like I have lived is not a wasted life. This is what you ought to aspire to fighting the good fight, finishing the race, and keeping the faith. One of the saddest titles of a book that I've ever seen was called Chronicles of Wasted Time. Chronicles of Wasted Time. It was a, it's an autobiography of Malcolm Muggeridge. He was editor of a, of a magazine in Britain, and he spent most of his life as a Marxist socialist without a saving knowledge of of Jesus Christ. And toward the end of his very days, by the mercy and grace of God, he was saved. He trusted in Christ for salvation. But when he looked back over all the years before, all he saw was wasted time. He had wasted so much of his life on things that didn't matter. And he finally had come to know what really mattered at the end of his life. 
So don't waste your life. Start spending it now for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. So that was his past. We saw his present. He was ready. His past, he's been faithful. And now, the future. He has a confident expectation. Look at verse 8. Paul sets before Timothy his expectation. He says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul is telling Timothy about the confident expectation in which he lived and ministered in order to focus our hearts and minds on that singular future hope of the Christian. He's fixing Timothy's eyes on the one hope that we all have in this life. Now I want to say two things about this. The first thing is this. Paul, Paul's speaking of his confident expectation that the Lord is going to reward his life for his faithful ministry is not in any way a contradiction of the glorious and biblical doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. See, this teaching is not only found in 2 Timothy 4, it's, it's found all through Jesus' teaching, all through the Old Testament as well as the New. The teaching that God will reward his faithful servants and that he saves us not by our works, but by our faith alone, through his grace alone, through Christ alone. Those two things are not contradictions. They go together hand in hand because ultimately speaking, these rewards are rewards of God's grace. We don't earn them. In his mercy, he gives them. We are saved not by works, but we are saved unto works. We are saved for works. Our works are a fruit of our faith. That was the theme this past week in VBS. Faith in action. The kiddos made blankets for a nursing home that were stuffed with love notes. They made blessing bags for children. They packed, I think it was 126 shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. They were showing their faith by their works. They were, they were loving people and showing that. That's what he's talking about here. The second thing that I want you to see is this. Notice that Paul endures what he endures in this life because his hope is on something that's more important. You see, his treasure is not here. His satisfaction is not here. The ends of his fulfillment are not here. They're on that crown of righteousness, which will be awarded to him on that last day. Isn't it interesting that Paul is so interested in that crown of righteousness? He longs for a day when, when he will not only stand before the Lord fully forgiven and free of the penalty of sin, because he already is. That was taken care of at the cross. But he longs for that day when sin will be, will be totally eradicated from him. When he is free of the power and of the presence of sin. When he stands before God because of his faith in and union with Jesus Christ, not only in the imputed righteousness of Christ, but cleansed of sin forever. 
never again having to struggle with temptation. Never again having to struggle with sin. Fully restored to the perfect relationship with God that he was created for. That's what he longs for. I just want to ask you this. Is that your greatest thing that you long for too? Is that your greatest aspiration personally as you think of the glory to come? Because this crown of righteousness is not just for Paul. It is for, it's for all those who have loved his appearing. Meaning all those who believe in him. Do you long for that day? Not just because you prefer heaven above hell. But because you prefer the glory of Christ and being wrapped up in a relationship with him above the sweetest pleasures of this earth. I pray that you do. I pray that that is what you long for. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord, I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to him today. You can begin a new life today. Now, I can't promise that it will be easy, that it will be free of hardships. In fact, it may very well be the opposite of that. But I can tell you that you will have a confident expectation of what eternity will look like. Because, listen, all of us are going to be spending eternity somewhere. And there's only two places. It's either with God or separated from God. That choice is determined by what you believe. What must you do to be saved? You must believe in Jesus. You must believe he went to the cross and died for your sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become perfect in God's eyes. He swapped our ugliness for his perfection. If you believe that you're a sinner and that he did that for you, then confess that to him and you will be saved. Believe in him and you will be saved. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul was calling Timothy to focus his eyes on this future hope. And he's calling you and me to focus our eyes on that future hope also. Remember Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Remember his assessment of his own ministry. And above all, remember this hope that he sets before your eyes. And listen, family, place your hope right there and finish strong.